Let's look at Isaiah 40, and let me just read for you uh, the text itself, verses 6 through 8. And it says, a voice calls, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are, what does it say? Grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, how long does it stand? Forever. Amen. Um, Comfort and common glory part four. And in particular, verses six through eight, and we'll call this God's sure word. God's sure word. Um, It is true. Life is transitory, is it not? But God is eternal. We're here for a period of time. And sometimes we don't know. As a matter of fact, we don't know. Even if someone were to tell us, even if a doctor were to say, here's a prognosis, you have three months or you have three weeks or it's a matter of hours. We still don't know the exact hour in which we're going to pass into eternity. And we do agree on this, that our passing into eternity is, in fact, something that is very small compared to eternity. As a matter of fact, there is no comparison. We cannot compare a life to eternal life. Um, we come, we grow, we change. Even as that mentioned, seeing our grandson uh, in six months, he's changed. And one day I'll see him again and he'll change again. And one day I'll see him and he'll change again. But what will also begin to happen, as has happened to me, and is happening to all of you, as we change, we also decline, do we not? Is anyone here under decline? Uh, yes, yes, you just as soon admit it, uh, because you are. Because in one sense, the moment you were born, you began to decline. So with birth, there was also the beginning of death, wasn't it? And sometimes the Lord in his graciousness may allow us to have a life full of days. And sometimes that life is shortened. But that doesn't mean that that life that's shortened doesn't have to be full. You do understand that, correct? Because we know that there are people who have many days lengthwise, but it's not a full life. And it's not a full life because they're not serving the Lord or the things of the Lord or they're not thinking eternally. There's some great people in history that we can think about that they had a small section of life, if you will, but the life was full. I was sharing with students even recently. We were talking about David Brainerd. How is it that I'm talking about David Brainerd? And 29 years. That's it. 29 years of life. But here we are um, many, many years later talking about his life because he lived a full life. And the way we need to live our lives is to the glory of God, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to review that in a moment. And if we can live for the glory of God, even though this life is transitory, it's temporary, um, we can live it to our fullest. Now, you do need to understand this as well. Uh, yes, this life will come to an end, but we will all live for any what? Eternity. Um, unlike the person who doesn't believe that there is an afterlife and would say that life just ends and so we should live it to our fullest. No, life will not end. Life will go on. You will live for an eternity. The question is, where will you live and how will you live? Will you live under the eternal grace of God and in his presence? That really is the question. 
And another thing about man being transitory and inconsistent is also this. We're going to see in this passage where it is a contrast between man and his unfaithfulness and God and his faithfulness. And all of us would agree and should even in one sense have a shout of praise that we serve a God who is faithful. What were, where would life be if God were not faithful? And where would, where would it be if we didn't have the answers to life? Where would it be if we could not trust the word of God? Even in that conversation, having with that gentleman, uh, obviously very astute, uh, very capable, but I felt no sense of intimidation whatsoever. And it's not because of anything that's in me. I felt no sense of intimidation because I know I have, I have the answers and here are the answers of life. And so though you can go Yale, Yale, and you could have gone Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Oxford, and St. Andrews, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because here are the answers of life. And these answers are eternal. And so God is a God of eternality, and that God of eternality is also eternally faithful. And we need to rest in that. And that's the context of these messages. It is comfort, comfort, which is how the passage began. And the comfort continues by reminding the people that you're like grass, you're like a flower, you're going to fade. But here is something that is constant. It is God, and it is his word. Everything else is changing around us, isn't it? I mean, we... Obviously, it seems like in these last five years, things have been changing at a rapid pace, hasn't it? I don't know any person that hasn't, when I was in Maryland or Virginia or North Carolina or South Carolina or other places that I've been and will go, I don't know a person that isn't talking about the last two years of life in the world. This is not always on our lips in one sense. I can't believe how the world changed. I can't believe how things are so different. Yes, they're changing But there is a constant. And in the midst of a change, if we are not grounded in the word of God, we will be swept away with it. We will be. But we don't need to be because our God gives us comfort, assurance. So as we think about um, these messages, I want to go through a brief review, a brief review for you. Um, We saw in verse one, which is the command of comfort, comfort, oh, comfort, my people says your God. So God cries out the people of God should be comforted. Why do they even deserve to be comforted? They're treacherous people. They're rebelled. That's why they're in the position that they are now. But God in his loving kindness says, I indeed want them to be comforted. Then there was a message of comfort. And what is that message? Speak kindly to them. Um, they have received what is due for their treacherous rebellion. God is going to be gracious to them. And then there's a message of a coming glory. And another voice is calling out, clear the way for the Lord. Make smooth these ways. Every valley lifted up, the mountains, the rough ground, the rugged terrain. And then it says the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. So there is this voice that calls out. There's a path of comfort. And the path is not talking about, I don't think, literal terrain. It's just saying um, an attitude, a way that has to be made for the Lord to come. And the revelation is ultimately, as we saw from a couple of weeks ago, three ways in which we see the glory of God. And if we can go to that next slide, it kind of gives us an indication of it. When it comes to the glory of God, how do we even understand it? The question that we tried to answer from verse 5 is, what is the glory of God? 
When will it be revealed? How do we know it will occur? And what's the relevance for today? Well, what is the glory of God? Uh, as we considered even before, the glory of God is what? We see it occurring 37 times um, in Isaiah, 20 times in 1 to 39, and then we'll see it 17 times in 40 to 66. This sense of glory, glory, glory. What is the glory of God? Well, um, in Isaiah, the glory of God means it's, it's, it's a special presence that we see of God. Not only do we see it in Isaiah, but we also see it uh, throughout Scripture. Say, for instance, the glory of God in a fire, the glory of God in a cloud. We see the glory of God in his delivering acts. When uh, God um, creates, this is the glory of God. In the Exodus, that was the, the glory of God that was demonstrated there. We also understand the glory of God when he's, it's recognizing his honor. It's according to his name. When we talk about, we'll give glory to God, it's saying let's recognize God, let's laud God, let's praise God is what is communicated. And then when we think about the glory of God, uh, let me quote something for you. And it says this, it would be dangerous for the feeble brain of man to wade far into the doings of the Most High, whom although to know be life and joy to make mention of his name, yet our soundest knowledge is to know that we do not know him as indeed he is. Neither can we know him. And our safest eloquence, and I love this part, and our our safest eloquence concerning him is our silence. When we confess without Uh, When we confess without confession that his glory is inexplicable, his greatness above our capacity and reach. And when it says here, our greatest confession, our greatest eloquence is our silence. It is not saying that we dialogue, that we don't try to answer questions about it, that we don't write about it. But in the end, we realize this is beyond me. This is too great. It is, in fact, within a Job and thinking about Job. Remember what happened to Job at the end of the book uh, when God comes onto the scene. And he says, Job, hold on a second. Have you ever? Have you ever? Have you ever? Have you ever? And at the end, what does Job say? Hmm. Let me put my hand where? Over my mouth. He says, I've heard of you before of, of the hearing of the ear, but now I know you. Who am I to say? And remember, what does God say to his, um, in part, um, not so good counselors? Well, three of them, he says, these three have not spoken to me properly, but they will offer unto you and your sins will be forgiven. Elihu is the only one that has spoken properly of me. There's a sense, and yes, in which we do speak of God, but we know there is a point in which we cannot speak fully of God and who he is. And the question would be, and I ask you, and I know you must agree with me, why would you want to serve a God that you can fully figure out? Is that a God worth serving? Is he a God worth worshiping and lauding and praising and giving your all? A God that you can actually say, I've read all the information, I've studied it, I've received formal training, now I fully understand the living God, the eternal infinite being. That makes no sense whatsoever. There must be some mystery remaining in God and who he is. And this is why Deuteronomy tells us even that there are the, the secret things belong to the Lord that are beyond us. 
And sometimes, even as those questions that came up earlier, how is it that God is also the one who brings about calamity and darkness and, and good and evil? Well, these secret things belong to him, but we trust it. What is God's glory? And we also communicated this. this it's a sign of his presence and power. This is God's glory. When, was that, when will it be revealed? Well, we already concluded that it would be revealed through Cyrus. We concluded that it would be in the person of Jesus Christ because his glory would be revealed. This is John chapter 1, and we saw his glory full of grace and truth. Uh, we also concluded that we would see the glory of God in the millennial temple. We notice um, Ezekiel chapter 1, chapter 11, and chapter 43. As a matter of fact, turn with me and keeping with this idea. We didn't look at this before. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. Isaiah 60, and it says here, Arise, shine, verse 1, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you. And his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So a period is going to come. Israel restored. The nations will see it. They will recognize that God's glory is with them. And it will be attractive. God will display his glory. And in one sense, all of us, we're to be a people individually who are showing the glory of God. What do they see in us? Do they see something of Christ emanating from us? Um, one of the greatest, um, and I'll call it this perhaps compliments, is when you don't say who you are, but people notice who you are. And what do I mean by that? Um, and this is, and I thought about whether or not I should say this, it is not meant to be boasting at all. Uh, because I'm sure you, could ha- you would have a similar testimony in some way. Uh, and there are times I go out, whether it be working out or, or even on the golf course or something like this. And, and generally I'm playing with people that I know, but sometimes not that. Uh, and they will use words that I would never use or have an attitude that I would not have. Um, and then later on, I will tell them what they, I do. And they say, oh, I kind of thought you were some kind of religious person. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, and even I have individuals that I know and they behave a certain way and they've given me a report. Yes. People asking me the question, they said, well, what is it? What is different about you? And hopefully you've had someone say that to you before. What's different about you? How you handled that situation is different. And those are the opportunities for us to, in some sense, show the glory of God. Now, how do we know it's going to occur? Well, we know it's going to occur because God's word says it. Look at verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has done what? What does it say? Has spoken. Has spoken. There is a sense of assurance that we have here. And this thought continues from verse 5 into 6 through 8. God has indeed spoken. Now, let me share something. You can go to the next couple of slides, actually, I think. Uh, the next one, super. 
what's the relevance for today? And this really is where we left off before. Uh, and I, in one sense, synthesized the thought. I didn't go through all of this as the time was crunching. Um, but what's the relevance for today? Let me give you four reasons. And this is all leading into verses six through eight. Number one, it's the purpose of our existence, the glory of God. This is why we exist. The scripture tells us what do all to the glory of God. Listen to the words of uh, theologian Millard um, Erickson. And he said this, and he was referencing uh, the magnificence of God. And he said this, by this is meant the greatness of God in terms of his power, knowledge, and other natural attributes, as well as the excellence and splendor of his moral nature. A fresh vision of the magnificence of the Lord of all is a source of the vitality that should pervade the Christian life. And that last thing he says, and I read it again, a fresh vision of the magnificence of the Lord of all is the source of the vitality that should pervade the Christian life. And what he is saying here is, when we think about the magnificence of God, or the glory of God is another way that he would communicate it later, this should affect everything that we do and think in life. It should be pervasive, as he says. How do we think about our life? It is our purpose for existence. To bring glory to God, to do all for the glory of God. Do we agree with that? And we know that we all at times fall short. We don't always live to the glory of God. But we pick ourselves up again and we continue to strive. So what's the relevance for today? Number two, it is this. It is the goal of salvation. Ephesians 1, 6, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. It's all done to the praise of his glory. So when we think about salvation itself, it is that God would be glorified, magnified, recognized as the sole person in the universe that is worthy of praise from his creation. And this is why every person um, throughout history, king or person of royalty or even a person of insignificance that tries to rob God of his glory finds himself fighting with God, does he not? whether it be from the extreme of a Nebuchadnezzar or whether it be a person who decides that they want the gold that is um, not allowed, it is robbing God of his glory. Then it's also this, number three, an unrevealed glory is an unredeemed humanity. See, an unredeemed glory is an unredeemed humanity. John 14 and 6, um, what did Christ say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Well, prior to that, the glory of God is revealed. And if the glory of God is not revealed, how can mankind be redeemed? It is John the Baptist when he saw Jesus Christ coming, and he said, Behold, and what did he say? Behold what? What did he refer to Christ as? The what? Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. And then he began to show or manifest even his glory then. So if the glory is veiled, then we are unredeemed. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. It is also this. um, It is the hope and rest of our salvation. The hope and rest of our salvation, Colossians 3, 4, and also Psalm 73, that we 
look to the glory of God. And it gives us perspective in this life. You remember uh, ASAP and, and what was the problem he had as he looked at life and he saw men who weren't living for the glory of God and he saw that their lives were fat, if you will. And it seems like they were without trouble. But in the end, he realized, oh, wait a minute, I came to my senses, he says, and I realized their end. And he beautifully states, and let's look, actually look at it really briefly, Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And I love what he says in verse 23. Notice verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken a hold of my right hand. Your counsel will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. And notice the picture that he gives of the Christian life. And what's the picture of the Christian life? First, you're with me. You have me by my right hand that is you're guiding me. And this is the picture. You guide me through life. You counsel me as I go through life. Then when life is over, what happens? I'm received into glory. And what a wonderful and beautiful picture it is, even of a person who has come to Christ. Christ takes hold of their right hand, if you will. He guides them through life and he leads them to glory. And you may have, some of you, Noted that um, in the recent uh, anchored thoughts that I, I referenced, you know, Sandy going to glory. I was preaching in Virginia, and my text was actually. Um, Acts seven fifty four to 60, Stephen has preached. Um, they said they were cut to the quick. Um, they covered their ears. They gnashed their teeth and they rushed towards him. They stoned him to death. Stephen looks up and he says, oh, I see the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And I took the position that standing at the right hand of God, because in other occasions we see him, he sat down, he sat down, he's seated, he's seated, because his um, sacrifice was sufficient. But now he's standing, and I took the position that he is standing in judgment. One stands to judge, but standing to receive. Then I talked about the last time I saw Sandy was at the receptionist's desk. And it was always, how are you doing? Where you been now? Good to have you back. You know, my travels. And I tell, you know, on the way up the stairs, oh, I went here. I just came back from wherever it was. So that's good. That was my last image. Have. Then she's received in the glory. It's like the Lord took her right hand. And he says, uh, and whenever she came to Christ, and, and I'm going to guide you, and I'm going to guide you, and this is what's going to happen. Now, you, you, you're going to, your life is going to end here, but it just begins. Amen. And he's with her all the way. That's a beautiful picture. And this is why Aesop says, oh, 
worry about the wicked? Why should I worry about the wicked? Why should I worry about their prosperity? Because their end is just the opposite. They will not see the glory of God. They will face the judgment of God. And see, this is a beautiful picture that we have, even of God's glory. And it is assured because of God's word. Amen. We don't have to guess. And this is why Paul would say that uh, we may mourn, but we don't mourn with those that have no hope. Because we have the reality of a resurrected Savior. And because of that reality, we can rest assured that he will in in fact translate us from this life into the next. Amen. Go back to Isaiah. So we see here, if we go to the next consideration is this. How do we look at these, these, this text? It's really in two parts here, two parts. Pretty straightforward. The message of man's frailty. We see that in verses 6 and 7. And then the message of God's faithfulness in verse 8. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40. And notice what it says here. The message of man's frailty, 6 and 7. How do we know man is frail? Well, the declaration is right before us. Um, What is the message that should be called out? People have tried to determine who uh, is the messenger, who is the person is asking, what they should call out. That's unimportant. And in one sense, we see that through 1 through 11, perhaps, is that the messenger is unimportant. The message is what is absolutely central. And what is the message? The message is one of man's frailty. How do we know that he's frail? Because it says, even at the end of verse 7, surely the people are grass. What is the purpose of the message? Let's answer some questions. What's the purpose of the message itself? Well, uh, it's a message that reminds the world that man cannot succeed without divine intervention. All that we attempt to achieve spiritually cannot be achieved without the Lord. It is the beautiful picture that we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, we were dead in transgressions and sins. And unless the Lord intervenes, we will all fail and we will fail miserably. Do we not agree with that? How many of you attempted to come to the Lord on your own? Uh, How many of you attempted to come to the Lord through good works? And if I were simply to reform my life and I were to be better in this way, and if I were to change this, and if I were to develop good habits and good disciplines, but the Lord says that is totally unsatisfactory. You can only come to me by me. This is salvation itself. So this is ultimately the message. Man is transitory. He is temporal. He is not the eternal source of life. What's the second question we should answer from this? What is the loveliness of mankind? Now, the Nasby says that. Notice, if you will, verse 6. Okay, the message, what shall I call out? Here's the message. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Very interesting here. Let's pause for a moment. So the Nasby has loveliness of mankind. Um, The NIV 84 has the glory of mankind. Uh, ESV, how many of you have an ESV here today? Um, You will see the beauty, right, of mankind. And some, if you have a Holman Bible, it will say the goodness of mankind. Now, if you look at the NAS uh, margin, you will see constancy there as an alternative. And the constancy of mankind. 
um, in one translation, which I do like a lot, and I would encourage you to get it, um, and you can get it online as well, which is the Net Bible. Um, it says all the promises of man. Oh, that's interesting. So you say a question now, how do I deal with this? I see glory from one. I see beauty. Holman says goodness. Um, ESV says it's beauty. Um, Holman says goodness, if you will. The NASB margin says constancy as opposed to loveliness. What do I do with this? So that's when, you know, you go to the text and I looked at it. That is in the Hebrew and it's this word chesed. Oh, interesting. And I thought, that's curious. Now, you're familiar with this word before, kesed, right? You've heard it many times before. Uh, one of the richest words in all of the Bible. I mean, it's one of the most profound um, words that can help communicate things about God and who he is and about his love and about covenant. Wonderful. So I thought, but that's an unusual um, loveliness or beauty or goodness for the word kesed. That's unusual. And so as I thought about it more in the context, in particular, when I saw the net translation of promises, what I believe is being communicated in context, this is about promise and faithfulness that I would accept the margin for sure from the NASB, which says constancy. So now we're towards something that says, who is consistent? Is man consistent? No, he's not. Is God consistent? Yes, he is. And I would even lean more towards the net Bible that says all of his promises, they're like the flower of the field. They seem bright and beautiful and attractive for the moment. Man says, and specifically in context, the people of God say, we will keep the covenant. We will keep the covenant. And it blooms up like a flower. But then it fades out. And this is what has happened with the northern tribes. It faded out. So God sends them where? He sends them into exile to the Assyrians. And then Judah says, well, we will be faithful. We are Judah. Judah and Benjamin, they will be faithful. And it comes up like a flower. It seems to be good. We won't be like treacherous northern brothers. But then what happens to that flower? It fades out. Man is that way. He promises and then it fades out. So let's now take this thought from Isaiah and the northern tribes and the southern tribes, and might we make an application in our life today? Have you ever in your life said, oh Lord, yes, I will be more faithful to you. Oh Lord, I will absolutely commit to you like I have not before. You hear a message. How many of you heard a message? Oh, that's the message. That's the one that's going to change my life forever. And lo and behold, it's like the flower of the field, and it fades away. We go to a retreat. Next week, we'll go to the retreat, right? And we go to Ironwood, and people hear the retreat, and it's wonderful. And I know people don't want to call it a retreat. They want to call it an advance, whatever. Uh, That really doesn't matter. (laughs) We don't go to a retreat. I go to an advance. I'm not retreating from the devil. I'm advancing on him. Okay, that's like the flower of the field. It sounds wonderful, but the question is, where will you be three months from now? Do we all agree? Sounds like some of you have been there before. This is what's happening in context. And this is even why when you look into the language itself, that is so curious. Why Why Hesed? This sense of loyalty and commitment. 
And this is why at times you see it often translated, it can be translated loyal. And you will see it translated loyal love. And this is why the NASB often translates it loving kindness. And even for the, uh, the NASB translators, they're creating a word by saying it's God's kindness, his, his practical care for someone, and it's his love merged together. Therefore, you have loving kindness. That's why it's so rich. And so he interjects it here, and you say to yourself, oh, that's interesting. Man is not loyal. God is. Man is not faithful, but God is. The point would have been obvious to the reader. Mankind will fail. We're frail. Even Judah, this is why now the Babylonians are coming, because we failed. And you would have thought that we would have learned from our northern brothers, but we failed. See, this is not just about the physical constitution of man, that he grows up, and as I referenced before, then we die. It is beyond that. It is about his moral character. There is a flaw in his moral character. And so he says, even as a covenant people, you cannot fulfill the covenant. That's why even with Abraham, you remember what happened with Abraham. That's why with Abraham, who initiated the covenant? God. Who is the one who sustains the covenant? It is God. And you remember the wonderful image that you see of God when he's ratifying the covenant, when um, the animals are torn asunder, right? And they're split in two. And then it says, and a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and this great sort of fire, uh, this brilliance passed between them. And why did it pass between them? Because God passed between it, because Abraham could not. Abraham, you can't keep the covenant. Your people can't keep the covenant, so I'll pass through alone. Whereas normally those that were making a covenant, they would pass through together. No, I will pass through by myself because you will fail. Your people will fail. Look with me to the book of Hosea. Look with me to Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. And notice what is communicated here. If you will, Hosea 6 and... Here again, Judah is at fault. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Hosea 6.4. It says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty or your hesed is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. So this is similar, right, to the grass and to the flower. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. And it says it's like a morning cloud. Boy, did you see the... Um, the overcast this morning. I mean, I was going out for my run. I'm thinking this is normally you could see the hills and every, I could not see a thing, but most likely by the time we get out of the second service, most likely it will do what all burn away. Your loyalty is like that. It's like the dew that's on the ground early in the morning and it's moist. But when the California sun hits it, what happens? It's dried up and it's gone away. Here's a third question we should answer about this text. When and why does God breathe on mankind? So go back to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, what does it say? All its flesh is grass. Its loveliness, its faithfulness, if you will. Its constancy is like the flower of the field. It says the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. What's interesting um, and most likely, Isaiah may has this in mind. Um, it's something that happens 
in May, which is a Hassim. And it blows, and I'll just read it, it blows over Palestine, and it comes from this hot, dry desert regions, regions of Arabia. Um, and it, it's referred to as a, even a pernicious wind. It blows often for several days without intermission. And it fills the atmosphere with fine dust. It's really oppressive. And I actually read an article that was from someone in Israel. And literally they were showing pictures of it coming in. And this is modern day Israel. And he says, <clears throat> he's referring to this Hasim, um, which is Arabic for 50. And it's similar to the Hebrew word that refers to 50 because it will often blow for that long. And it talks about these prevailing western winds that comes from the south. And he talks about how it's hot and it's oppressive and this itchy cloud of sand that comes in. And it showed me a picture of when the winds are not blowing and how far you could see and how beautiful it was. And when it was blowing, it was murky and brown. And you could see that it was oppressive. And what happens here? What's going to happen in California? Uh, we're moving into the fall, into the winter. What's going to happen? We'll get a few drops of what? Of rain. What's going to happen around the hills? It, they will turn what? For a moment. Is that not true? <laughs> and I remember five years ago, it looked like Ireland around here. You remember that? This was like beautiful. Let's go for a ride. But lo and behold, come May, June, July, gone. This is brown as crunchy as can be, right? <laughs> it's mankind, you're like that. You sprout up for a period of time, then the, the breath of the Lord blows on you. So why would the breath of the Lord blow on them? Well, it would because what? The breath of the Lord would blow on them because the northern tribes, he blew on them. Go to exile. Then he says, okay, that's enough. The Assyrians, it's time to release my people. Then the breath of the Lord blows on them and the Assyrians and he defeats them. And how does he defeat them? Through the Babylonians. And in one sense, he breathed life into the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrians. And now he says, now, you, Judah, you thought that you were so faithful. You made these pledges. You said how you would not be like your northern brothers. Then God blows on them because of their treachery. And on mankind throughout history, he has done this. The breath of, he gives the breath of life. Genesis 1. And what happened? God formed him from the what? And what did God do to make him a living being? He breathed. Look at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. And then in verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord, I'm sorry, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. He spread out the earth and its offspring who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And when the Lord says that breath is gone, it is gone. He gives life to all persons. So it comes in chastisement. It comes in life itself as well. He breathes on them. How about the second part? The message of God's faithfulness. Amen. This is glorious. The message of God's faithfulness. Go back to Isaiah 40. Then verse 8, Isaiah 40, then verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. It's obvious. The people are the, gla- the grass. They are the flower. And a bit different because the grass easily um, can be produced and easily taken away. But the flower is a bit of a nuance because the flower represents something that's beautiful and it's attractive. But at the same time, it will be taken away as well. 
um, here's some points to consider. There's a contrast with man's inconsistency. Notice the contrast with man's inconsistency. And what is it? Uh, But the word of the Lord. But, just the word but. Go with me to Jeremiah. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 3. And I may have to take us like till 1033. 1033. Okay. That's not a total promise. 1033. All right, Jeremiah chapter 3. Notice, listen to this. Yes, verse 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every hill and every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she had done all these things, she would return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So notice what he's setting up. And I saw all, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel. I had sent her away and given her a verdict of divorce. So he sends her where? What does he send the northern tribes? To the Assyrians. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it's what I was saying earlier. Judah thought, well, it won't happen to us. We are faithful Judah. They didn't learn the lesson. And all of us can apply that to our lives as well. We see some tragedy happen to one person, and you would think that you would learn from it. Spiritually here, they don't learn from it. And notice what it says in verse 9. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And obviously he's saying all sorts of false gods. Yet, in spite of all this... Her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception declares the Lord. Therefore, the Babylonians have come. Because you're like a flower. You come up for a moment and you say that you're, you're going to be faithful, but you're not. Look with me, Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 12 it says, I, even I, am he who, com- who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like this? Why is this important? Remember, this chapter starts with this idea of comfort. I'm the only one that can comfort you, Israel. I'm the only one, Judah. Man is like grass. Don't fear man. He is going to die. So contrast. Second is this, the covenantal nature of God's promises. Go back to Isaiah, Isaiah 40. What do you mean by this, the covenantal nature of of God's promise? Well, because it says it. Notice what it says at the latter part of verse 8. Yes, the contrast, but the word of our God. So that's the covenantal nature of it. It is our God. Our God has spoken. It is personal. It is not simply saying, which could have been communicated, uh, the word of the Lord. At times we see that throughout hundreds of times. You'll see the word of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord has spoken. But here, our God has spoken. We violated the covenant. Have mercy on us. And then, how about this? The eternal nature of God's promise. It will stand for how long? Forever. That's the eternal nature of it. It stands forever. Every promise of God stands forever. Amen? Why does it stand forever? 
Um, let me give you several reasons why. Number one is this. It stands forever because it's bound to the nature of God. When God speaks his word, this is bound to his nature. It must be consistent with his nature. Why does it stand forever? Because it's breathed from, I'll put it this way, it's breathed from the will of God. God's will will be done in his word. Third consideration, it's the revelation of the nature of God. When we read God's word, we read about him, do we not? How do we discover that he's a God of loving kindness, a God of kindness, a God of mercy, a God of wrath? Uh, How do we know these things? It's through his word. So, of course, this word must be accurate. And I would say this. It's the revelation of the intention of God. Everything that God intends to do is in his word. And we participate in that. We have the joy, the privilege of participating in God's plan unfold. Like every time, I, and I love being here and always say I always want to come back as soon as I can. But what a privilege I have when I go and to preach the word of God. This is an amazing thing to me. That you go from a sinner um, to now someone who can go and you're seeking sinners to be saved. I want you to see one last thing. Go with me to Isaiah 55. Say why there. Um, Isaiah 55. In one sense, we see a bit of an inclusio here, an inclusio bookends. Because remember, the next big section is Isaiah 40 to 55. So here, notice he says in verse 8, the word of God stands forever. Then notice what he says in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word, which goes forth from my, what does it say? Mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. And there is the will of God. God's will will be accomplished and without succeeding in the matter for which it was sent. We can trust his word. Amen. See, the question for us again is, well, all these conversations about um, Judah and Israel, what does that have to do with me in 2021? Again, I said to you, as I said last, a couple weeks ago, everything. I mean, if you can't trust his word, you have nothing to trust. If you you can't believe that he's going to take you you by the right hand and guide you into glory when this life is over, then what do you trust? If you can't believe that he's the one that fights your battles, then you will fight them on your own and you will fail. If, if you don't believe that the Messiah is the one whose glory will be revealed, and now you have the privilege to show that glory in some way to those around you where people can say there's something different about you, then what are you living for? These messages are always about, in one sense, driving the nail, if you will, into my heart and to your heart. And it's saying, our God is trustworthy. His word will stand forever. We are transient. But in the time that we have here, and I would say it this way, let us live, let us be transformed for the glory of God. Amen? As the scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being changed from glory to glory. And as we're being changed from glory to glory, let us live for the what? The glory of God. Father, we thank you for your words you give us. Show us grace as we go from here. In Christ's name, amen.